Hey everyone, Joe here, and welcome to episode, holy crap, 99 of the Upper Memory Vlog Podcast. Uh, this is going to be another guest show, one more guest show from uh, from my good buddy Trolls, who's going to be talking about a cool game that I have frankly never heard of called uh, Steel Empire, and uh, also going to be a first here, which uh, he'll get into in a little more detail, but uh, you know, our first UMB uh, developer interview, so interactive dev story, if you will, and uh, really, really looking forward to that. So I just wanted to pop in here to introduce uh, Trolls in the guest show, and also to say that obviously, uh, you know, the next episode is going to be uh, podcast number 100, which for a lot of podcasts, mine included, is uh, is sort of uh, an event. And I, you know, I was trying to been figuring out, oh, you know, I should do something cool for episode 100 and, and blah, blah, blah. And uh, finally, given uh, the situation with uh, with the UM baby and all that, and uh, these past few guest shows that have been coming out since October, uh, I figured that the coolest uh, event and the coolest thing that I could do would be uh, for episode 100 to be a normal, regular, straight up, classic, upper memory block podcast by yours truly. And uh, so I think that's just what we're going to do. We're just going to keep rolling along. Episode 100 will, I guarantee, finally be uh, the episode on Star Trek The Next Generation of Final Unity, and we're going to get back rolling from there. Hope to get that out uh, in the next couple of weeks after this show comes out. And uh, we'll we'll roll on in a new world with, with triple-digit episode numbers uh, from there on out. So that's that. Thanks, everyone, again, as always, for uh, or as usual, as, as in recent days, uh, putting up with uh, the weird schedule. Thanks to the guest podcasters so, so much for, for keeping the feed going. And I will see you in a little while with uh, episode 100, Star Trek The Next Generation, A Final Unity. And that's that. Take it away, trolls. Do you have what it takes to conquer the planet Orion with your massive cybernetic battle droids? Let's find out. With Steel Empire, or Cyber Empires, more on that later, this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity, or do you die here? Hello, fellow blockers! I am not Joe Mastriani. I am, in fact, the Space Quest historian. You may know me by my real name, Trolls, or as that jerk who ruins Joe's Patreon's hangouts by swearing a lot and getting Tomer insanely drunk and adding S's to the end of words that don't need them. Uh, seeing as Joe is currently busy not doing the thing that he was clearly put on this earth to do, which is making this podcast, and instead decided to procreate, I answered his call to do a guest episode of his show. And I am honored and humbled to have been able to been given the chance to do so. This podcast holds a very near and dear place in my heart. And, uh, you know, listening to it was what made me want to get into podcasting in the first place myself, uh, which I then did with the Space Quest Historian podcast and then the Backseat Designers podcast uh, and then a third podcast called Nerd Against the Machine. All of those have a dot com at the end. You can go check those out if you want. But right now I am, as I said, Honored and humbled to be able to do this guest episode for Joe. Good old Joe. Love you, Joe. 
the game that we're going to talk about today is indeed from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. And you may have thought that it was going to be an adventure game since they're really the only sort of games that I play. And uh, you, you might even have thought it was, was going to be a space game of some kind, you know, Space Quest historian kind of thing. But no! Today we are going to talk about what I like to call a Forgotten Gem. It's a game that I played incessantly as a young teenager, possibly even what you might call a adolescent child, around about the age of uh, 13 or 14, uh, all the way up through university. And it's a game that I still fire up occasionally when I find someone who actually wants to sit down and play it with me. Um, it is Steel Empire! or Cyber Empires, as it was known in North America. Now, I realize dealing with a game that actually has two different titles is going to get confusing in a hurry, so I'm going to keep calling it Steel Empire throughout the show, because that's how I knew it when I was growing up, and that's how it will always be to me. So, apart from the name change, uh, the game is actually identical, regardless of whether you're playing the American or the European version. And I will even get into why there was a name change, in the first place later on in the show. But for now, let's do this the way the man does it. That would be Joe. And dive right into the overview. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for Steel Empire was released in March 1992 by Millennium Inter Interactive. Not Interactive. I don't know what that is. It's Interactive. Millennium Interactive in Europe. And later that same year by Strategic Simulations Incorporated, or SSI, in North America. It was developed by the then-fledgling studio, that's a hard word to say, fledgling studio Silicon Knights, who would go on to claim fame with such titles as Eternal Darkness, Sanity's Requiem for the Nintendo GameCube, and Blood Omen Legacy of Kane for the PlayStation, neither of which I have played very much. Uh, Steel Empire, however, was their first game, and we'll get to how all that came to pass in the dev story, which uh, is coming up at the end of the show, and where we'll also hear from the creator of the game and the founder of Silicon Knights, Dennis Dyack himself. More on that later. Uh, Steel Empire is a hybrid game. On the one hand, it's a turn-based strategy game. It's uh, very similar to Risk, you know, the board game, Risk. And on the other hand, it's also a top-down, head-to-head, hot-seat arcade shooter. Uh, yeah, sounds weird, doesn't it? Uh, I'll go into uh, both of these types of gameplays later on, but suffice to say for now, uh, you start out with the strategy portion of the game, and then when you and an opposing army go into battle, then that battle is then decided in the top-down shooter portion of the game, uh, called the Battle Simulator. And then it's back to the strategy part again, and then you get into another fight, and then it's back to the uh, Battle Simulator, and back and forth. But uh, let's first talk story and find out why we're so keen on picking fights in giant cyborgs in the first place. <clears throat> 2280. Five empires descend upon the neutral and strategic planet of Orion in an attempt to claim it as their own. The days of conventional warfare are over. The age of the cybernetic warrior. Is now, I'm, I'm serious. That's the opening uh, crawl that I just read out in a very silly voice. And uh, it actually says Cyborn. It's spelled C-Y-B-O-R-N-E-T-I-C. Cybornetic. Um, 
I don't know, second language for me, but I'm pretty sure that's supposed to be an E in cybernetic. But anyway, that's really all the story we get. That's all the intro of the game says, and it just says that over a black background with this kick-ass music playing in the background. And now, um, how to actually play the game? Well, there are five empires who want control of the planet Orion because golly gee, it's such a, it's a it's a swell planet. It's full of resources, maybe candy, uh, and all the, these five empires are going to kick the nuts and bolts out of each other's armies to gain full control over it. And honestly. Do we need any more of an excuse than that? And the fast answer is no, no, we don't. So let's just get into how you play the game uh, with the gameplay itself. Now, at the start of the game, or at least the game in complete campaign mode, we'll get to the different modes of play later, but we're going to focus on the complete campaign now. You're asked to pick your army out of five armies available, and you can name your army anything you want, and all of the armies have the exact same capabilities, so there is no strategy to this choice. It's basically whatever flag you think looks the best. After having picked uh, an army, you can then choose how many opponents you want to play against out of the remaining four armies, and whether or not those opponents are supposed to be human or CPU controlled. This means you can actually play the game with four human buddies, yourself being the fifth, which makes Steel Empire quite the fun party game, but I digress. Once everyone has picked their army, you are then presented with an overhead map, and thus this overhead map is divided into countries, and each player starts out in a single country. Uh, I was going to say single country of their own, but that's not entirely true, because the first thing you have to do is claim that country for your army, and you do this by planting a flag. I'm serious, there's a button with a flag on it on the screen, and you click on the button with the flag, and then you click on the country. Boom, you plant a flag. Now, planting a flag costs money, but owning a country also generates revenue for you, and you're going to need this for building factories, which in turn you'll need to build cyborg soldiers, which you'll then need to move into adjacent countries to plant more flags and build more factories and more cyborg soldiers and so on and so on. Ah, the sniffles, I've missed those. So, what kind of cyborgs can you build? Well, there are nine types of cyborgs in the game. Some are useful, some are very useful, and some are completely irrelevant in any situation. Uh, Cyborgs cost money, and they also cost a set number of turns to finish completion. I told you it was a turn-based game. Every time you're done dicking around with, uh, I'm going to plant a flag, and I'm going to build a factory, and I'm going to build some cyborgs, and I'm going to move some cyborgs. Uh, And then you click your turn... uh, finished and then the other player takes over does all of his or hers dicking around and then uh, at some point it's back to you uh, depending on how many players you have um so the amount of turns needed to build uh cyborgs can be adjusted by then building factory upgrades on top of your existing factories and wow it's already getting a bit complicated so i'm just going to quickly run through each of the cyborgs that you can build and tell you what they're actually good for at the bottom rung, you have the Mercury. It's uh, it's only got a teeny tiny little laser weapon, and uh, it can be destroyed if you breathe at it too harshly. It's good for sending out on you know exploration and claiming little countries on its own, and it's dirt cheap, and it only takes one turn to build. Uh, and uh, as long as it's on its own, it'll be fine. If it runs into other cyborgs, then it's uh, basically dead the minute it lays eyes on it. The Cyclops Cyborg is very similar to the Mercury, but costs twice as much and is similarly useless. The Dragon, however, is one of the most useful cyborgs in the game. It only takes one turn to build at the start of the game. It's comparatively cheap. It's equipped with a freaking flamethrower. I mean, in, in, 
uh, here's the thing. When, when you're in battle, cyborgs tend to overheat if you fire too rapidly or if you stand on hot surfaces or if they get shot at. Uh, and this makes them, first, unable to move or fire their weapons, and if you overheat them too much, it causes them to explode. So... The dragon with its little flamethrower, it's its the only cyborg in the game that has a flamethrower. So a swarm of these little bad boys can take down even the mightiest of cyborgs. The dragon is the secret weapon of this game, basically. Next up is the Mars Type 6. And no, I have no idea what happened to the other five. Uh, the Mars is the cheapest robot to have a so-called heavy laser as opposed to the puny laser of the Cyclops and the Mercuries. It does phenomenal damage compared to the little laser I just mentioned, and it also has two of those tiny little lasers for no good reason whatsoever, because you never run out of ammo with the heavy laser. Oh yeah, some weapons in the game have ammo, but the heavy laser, oh, it's just its just a big bolt of energy that just blasts through trees and city walls, and it's fantastic. Uh, moving hastily along, uh, next up we have the Crossbolt, which is a big, lumbering, huge dinosaur of a robot equipped with four long-range missile turrets. Now, there's a difference between short-range and long-range missiles in this game. Long-range are fun, because when you fire those, you actually control the missile in the air, and really, really fast ones, too. And you guide their trajectory towards the target, which admittedly takes a bit of practice, but they're very handy when they're controlled by the computer. So I'll get into that later. Next up is the Achilles robot, which is very aptly named because it's also completely useless. It has four of those little light lasers, which might as well be fly swatters, and it has two short-range missiles, which is the opposite of the long-range because they just fire in a straight line. You don't get to control anything. Uh, the next two cyborgs on the list are not completely useless, but you will rarely build them, and I'll explain why in just a minute. First up is the Hercules, which has two heavy lasers, two small lasers, and two short-range missiles. Sounds fun, right? And after that is the Behemoth, which also has two heavy lasers, and it has both short-range and long-range missiles, and even has little cannons that fire these little destructive pellets. They look like rabbit poop. Um, but you'll hardly ever use these two cyborgs for anything, because by the time you have the money and upgrades enough to build these cyborgs, you will not be building them. You'll be building the last cyborg on the list, uh, the Titan Mark IV. Now this beast has two heavy lasers, two of those little tiny rabbit poop pellet cannons, and two guided missiles. But more importantly, it's built like a hulking factory of death. It takes a lot to take down a Titan, and really the only reliable way to do it is to either square it off with another Titan, or to get three or four dragons to surround it and just fire blast it to smithereens. Okay, so these are the cyborgs that you can build. You can only build stuff in a country that you own, which is a country where your flag is planted. To claim other countries, you first have to build a cyborg factory and then build cyborgs to move into adjacent countries. And uh, moving a cyborg into an adjacent country takes a turn, which means all of your opponents will have their turn before uh, your cyborg arrives in the next country. But once it's there, you are then able to claim that country and start generating revenue from that. Now, just to clarify, you don't actually have to build a factory in every single country you go to. You just have to build one factory and then you can just, you know, build cyborgs there and just send them off into the world to plant flags. But it's actually a very good idea to, uh, once, you know, once the pace picks up, to start building more factories closer to, you know, the uh, yeah, hot points of the map, uh, you know, where all the action takes place. So you can 
you know, get cyborgs uh, to the front lines faster. Because like I said, you know, moving a cyborg from one country to an adjacent country takes a turn regardless of how many upgrades and how big and badass your robot is. So, yeah. Uh, let's talk a bit about the countries. The countries themselves fall into five categories. You've got your ice, volcanic, and desert ones. Uh, these don't uh, generate that much revenue, but uh, they're fun. Uh, and they have their own little, um, uh, what you might call it, uh, environmental uh, eff effects, uh, volcanic and desert ones especially. Your cyborgs will overheat faster, while, while uh, you know ice levels, they won't overheat as much. So the dragons have a bit of a harder time. All of that stuff. Um, Another country type is coniferous, which was a word I did not know when I played the game, but it means forest, foresty. Um, these countries are worth a little more than the ice volcanic and desert ones. And then you have the cities, which are worth a ton, but there's no space in cities to actually build anything. So these are just money makers. Players of Steel Empire will usually go for the cities because they make the most money. In fact, there's a huge city in the middle of the map that everyone, every experienced Steel Empire player will just swarm to. All the action basically just pulls in towards the middle of the map and that's where the big battle takes place until that country is bombed to poop and uh, then you start going at the fringes of the map. I'm getting ahead of myself again. Um, the type of country also makes a lot of difference when you start going into battle with other armies because of different terrain and different uh, things. I will get into the actual battle in just a tick. Now, countries also have a fixed amount of space available for building factories and factory upgrades and fortifications, which I won't go into because this is already getting a lot of uh, complications. No, it's already getting a, a lot complicated. I should... Shut up, really. Um, you will, <coughs> back to the script, you will inevitably need to invade more countries to build more stuff in order to keep your empire strong against the opposing forces. Now, when you move your cyborgs into a country that's already occupied by another player, one of two things may happen. If the other player does not have any cyborgs in that country, then you just swoop in and remove their flag uncontested. It just knock it over, the country's yours, you can then plant your own flag and claim it as your own, start generating revenue, the opposing player simply loses that country, along with anything they had built in there. Now, if your opponent did have cyborgs in there, then it's time to do battle. We're going to assume now that we're dealing with two human players here, because that's the most fun. Uh, if not, then you play against the uh, computer. Um, first, the attacking force gets to plan their attack. And uh, in combat, you only control one cyborg at a time, but you can attack with a whole horde of cyborgs. I forget how many you can have, but it's, uh, I don't know, 10, 14, 15, I don't know. Um, and the other cyborgs are then, um, you know, the other cyborgs on your team are then controlled by the computer. Um, I'll get into how that works in just a tick, but uh, we're still in the planning stages. On the planning screen, the first planning screen, we're the attacking force. We now get to tell the computer who's controlling the rest of our cyborgs what strategy to follow. Do you either focus on destroying uh, enemy cyborgs or do you focus on destroying the landscape and thus devaluing the country so, you know, uh, he can make less money off of it? Or do you focus on going after the opponent's flag? Because remember, planting a flag costs money, so if you demolish the other player's flag, they have to spend more money replanting it. Or finally, you can just go for a little bit of everything. Just send your robots off into a, you know, frenzy of destruction. And you also get to pick how intensely they should follow the strategy. Basically, how single-minded do you want your computer-controlled cyborgs to behave? You 
can also choose to just let the computer take over completely and not have to pilot any cyborgs yourself, but where's the fun in that? There really isn't. Next up, the defending force gets to plan their strategy, and they get an overhead map of the country. And they can place whatever cyborgs they have wherever they like on that map. See, the attacking force only attacks from one side, like in a big row, just all at once, just, uh, you know, moving towards um, the, the center. But uh, the defending force can plant their uh, cyborgs anywhere in the country, like, uh, you know, wherever they want. Um, they can also choose to have the computer place the cyborgs for them, but again, where's the fun in that? The flag is always located in the center of every country, so it does make sense to place your most powerful cyborgs around the center structure to defend it. Um, both players can also see what cyborgs they have at disposal for the battle and how much health these cyborgs have, because, you know, cyborgs will inevitably take damage in battle and they can be repaired, but they can only be repaired on the map screen, not while you're, you know, planning your battle. So, okay, we've laid down our strategy, it's time to suit up and do some damage. And this is where the game now switches to a split-screen, top-down, arcade-style, free-roaming shooter. I'm not kidding. Each player pilots his or her cyborg of choice, but can switch on the fly between all of their available cyborgs. And uh, the computer will control the other cyborgs on your army, but if you switch over, then the computer takes over the one you were just piloting, and you pilot a new one. And if a cyborg is destroyed, the game automatically switches that player over to the next cyborg in line until there are no more left because everyone is dead. You can also issue commands to your computer-controlled cyborgs, and this is actually key to win because the AI in this game is dumb as a bag of bricks. Cyborgs all have, you know, individual capabilities, like I mentioned earlier, but the computer completely disregards all the advantages and disadvantages of each cyborg and just uses the same attack strategy for all of them. Uh, remember the uh, crossbolt cyborg I talked about, talked about earlier? Um, these cyborgs are absolutely deadly when they stand still and just shoot guided missiles at their opponents. You know, like, they're basically like uh, moving fortification towers. But if you start actually walking one of those around and uh, get into close combat, they're absolutely useless. The AI does not care a bit about this. If if uh, the AI is left untended, it will happily charge a crossbolt up against other cyborgs and let it get pummeled to smithereens and then move the next crossbolt into the line of fire. No worries. So, you do need to plan your strategy according to what cyborgs you go into battle with and how much you have to babysit the AI. So if you have a lot of crossbolts, for instance, on your army, uh, you can tell the computer to hold fast, which translates to just stand right there and shoot a lot. Don't move. So um, the AI really isn't that good in close combat, regardless of what cyborgs you have, to be honest. So uh, telling all the other cyborgs at the start of the game uh, or at the start of the battle, really, to just hold fast and then take on, you know, your opponent single-handedly is usually the smartest option. Um, the other command you have is retreat, and this tells your cyborgs to bolt and head for the exit. Um, this opens up the exit uh, that you came in, so to speak, and uh, if you manage to run all your cyborgs across this line, then you escape with whatever you know damage you have taken, but you don't actually win the country, so you're sent back to the country you started from. Um, all your computer robots will, uh, or your computer cyborgs will also run for the exit, uh, but you have to, you know, in the uh, cyborg that you're controlling, you also have to make it to the exit. Once everyone's off the map, then, you know, tail between your legs, lick your wounds, all that stuff. 
And there is more to do in the game. Uh, now we're back on the map screen. Uh, you can spy on other countries to determine their worth. You can build fortifications, like I said. There are basically big walls around your flag uh, structure with like missile turrets and stuff. But I'm going to stop here because I've already gone on for too long. Um, just to recap, in essence, this is the game. You build cyborgs, you claim countries, and then you demolish your opponents until you're the last one standing. That's basically it. Now... Just on the uh, uh, final note here, I, I did say there were different modes of gameplay, and that's true, there are three modes. The one I just described, uh, described at, frankly, tiresome lengths, is the complete campaign. But you can also play a strategy campaign, which is just, uh, my, what the hell is my mouth doing? Where the strategy campaign, where it's just, you know, the risk portion of the game, the, um, the strategy part, and then the uh, CPU will take care of all the combat, basically unseen, it'll just go, well, this one won, or this guy won. Um, or you can play Battle Practice, which is basically just the combat simulator, the top-down shooty part. Uh, in this, you can either play Hot Seat with another living human, or you can play Survivor Mode, where you're just one cyborg against an endless onslaught of enemy cyborgs, you know, see how long you can survive. Okay, that is it. Now you know how it plays, hopefully. And now it's time to see how this thing actually works. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Steel Empire was originally released for the Atari ST and ported to the Amiga and IBM PC in 1992. It was coded mostly in assembly language on all three platforms, uh, but with the assembly language being different on all three platforms, this essentially meant that the, uh, each version of the game had to be more or less reprogrammed from scratch. If you don't know what assembly language is, uh, you should probably let Joe explain it. I'm not a programmer, but I did look over my dad's shoulder when he tried to learn programming and assembly for the Commodore 64, and it's basically machine code. It's like a step, just a step above, uh, you know, ones and zeros. It's uh, it's very complicated <laughs> for a person like me who can't write a single line of code to save his life. Um, um, I'm pretty sure that Steel Empire will run in EGA, uh, on the IBM PC at least, in 16 colors, but I've never actually seen it do it. Um, there is no way to select your graphics mode when you start, when you start the game, so I've only played it in 256 color VGA. Um, yeah, sorry, I've, you know, I've looked around and I've tried to mess around with my DOS box to see if I can force the game to go into EGA. I can't do it, admittedly, I should probably have spent more than five minutes trying, but anyway, the game supports 256 color VGA, which was uh, pretty good for 1992, I think. Um, uh, you know, at least if it didn't support EGA, that's that's pretty weird for a 1992 game. This was around the time when, uh, you know, Sierra Online's King's Quest V and uh, Space Quest IV had just come out in 1991. And uh, uh, a year later, we're looking at Doom. So, well, I suppose it's it makes sense that you wouldn't support EGA in 1992. I don't know. I'm rambling. Let's get on with the script. Um, the game controls with either a joystick or a combination of mouse and keyboard. 
I don't personally own a joystick, so I can't speak to whether it controls well with it or not. Uh, the strategy part uh, is where you would use the mouse to move around the overhead map and build your army, and the combat arcadey bit, the battle simulator, is where you would use either a joystick or a keyboard, but personally I'm perfectly happy just using the keyboard. It controls very well, you use uh, the arrow keys, uh, including the diagonal keys, so you, you're you using the uh, numpad thing, um, and you have a button for firing, you have a button for changing weapons, you have a button for switching cyborgs, and you have two buttons for issuing those uh, commands I mentioned, hold fast and retreat. And, you know, it controls very well. The cyborgs are very responsive, and you can even map your keys any way you want, because you are going to be sharing a keyboard with the uh, opponent, opposing player. So, uh, you know, the attacking force will sit on the left and use uh, Q, W, E, A, S, D, Z, X, and C, or Z and C for uh, everyone else. Um, anyway, it, you know, uh, basically mapping out a numpad uh, arrow key configuration on the left side of the keyboard while you're sitting over on the right using the actual numpad. Um, basically, what I'm saying is uh, you know, make sure you have a keyboard buffer that can, you know, uh, DOSBox takes care of all that. <clears throat> now, Running the game, actually, um, is no problem. The game runs perfectly in DOSBox with standard settings. There are no, you know, timer issues to look out for. The game was, like I said, coded in assembly, so it's it's pretty much, uh, you know, uh, on the, you know, machine level uh, stuff, so I don't even know what I'm saying. Um, as for music and sound, the gameplay is mostly silent because, uh, you know, once you're actually in the game, you only get sound effects. And these are, uh, at least on the IBM PC, these are like ding, ding kind of sound effects. And then you get into the battle simulator and it's all all of that stuff. Um, there's only one piece of actual music in the game and it plays over the opening titles. And you heard it a little earlier in the show when I was uh, doing my silly voice in the introduction. Uh, in fact, you're also hearing it in the background right now. Um, this is uh, the uh, Adlib Sound Blaster uh, theme of the game. Uh, the game also does support the uh, Roland MT32, which for some reason adds drums to the opening theme. That sounds like this. kind of a Terminator kind of feel to it. Um, now, just for kicks, let's uh, briefly look at how that same piece of music sounds on the other two platforms the game was released on, because I find that stuff interesting. Um, remember, it was released on Atari ST and Commodore Amiga, and uh, the original version of the game was created for the Atari ST. So this was probably the original iteration of the main theme, and that sounds like this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
mean, as you can tell, it sounds a lot like the music in the IBM PC version. Different synthesizer, but it's basically it's basically the same theme. Um, and then the game got, uh, got ported to Amiga, and <laughs> I don't know. This, this is what happened. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know. I, it's, it's still, you know, pretty kick-ass and everything, but it sounds nothing like the other two version. I, I just thought that was weird. Um, I also wish I could tell you who composed the music, or if it was the same composer for all three versions. Uh, you know, Atari ST and IBM PC. That's the same piece of music, but I don't know what the hell happened with the Amiga. One, but at any rate, the composer is not actually listed in the credits of any of the versions, only sound effects. Uh, and when I asked Dennis Dyack about it, the Silicon Knights founder, he couldn't remember either. Um, oh, oh, speaking of Dennis, uh, this is probably a good segue into the dev story. So why don't we do that? You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for Oh yes, dev story time. You know, it's it's strange, but there's actually not a lot of information about Steel Empire to find online. Um, not even if you type in Cyber Empires, the American title. Um, it was created by Silicon Knights, a development studio from Canada, and it was their first game. And it was actually completed before the company was even founded. The company was founded by Dennis Dyack and Rick Gertz in 1992 on the basis of Steel Empire. The two men created the game while Dennis was still studying computer science in Canada, and Rick was a teacher. And they secured a publishing deal with Millennium Software in Europe for releasing the game. And then, after that, in North America, Dennis went to meet SSI on the strength of already having the game released in Europe... And SSI published not only the game as Cyber Empires for some reason, but also commissioned three more games from Silicon Knights, which essentially funded the start of the company. And when I say for some reason, they, they retitled it Cyber Empires, uh, which I asked Dennis about, and you'll hear why in a minute. Uh, Silicon Knights would then go on to create Fantasy Empires, which played much the same way as Steel Empire, but it had a Dungeons & Dragons license attached to it. Uh, Silicon Knights would then later become known for games such as Blood Omen Legacy of Cain, uh, the, the aforementioned Eternal Darkness for the GameCube, and also the GameCube remake of Metal Gear Solid, before falling out of favor with some critically panned titles like Two Human and X-Men Destiny. Uh, following a lengthy and complicated lawsuit against Epic Games over the use of their Unreal Engine, Silicon Knights lost and went out of business. Now, when Joe does this show, he usually gives a very comprehensive background story on the developers and the company, but um, while there is a lot of reading material about the latter days of Silicon Knights, and most of it isn't very pretty, there is not a lot to find about the early days of the company. So, I sat 
down with my Twitter magic powers and got in touch with Dennis Dyack himself and told him that I was working on this podcast about his first game. And he seemed to like that idea. So he agreed to come in and sit down with me and actually tell me the story of the game in his own words. So instead of me sitting here telling you how the game came uh, came to be, I'm now going to let Dennis tell you instead. Um, and we talked for a little over an hour, so what you're going to be listening to now is an edited down version, you know, because otherwise this would uh, this podcast would end up in Square Waves FM territory uh, with regards to length. Uh, but I've uh, handed off the full-length interview to Joe so he can publish it, uh, you know, however he sees fit if you want to listen to the whole thing. Um, Dennis and I also talked briefly about the current legal status of Steel Empire, so that would cover Joe's uh, traditional where to get the game today uh, bit, but uh, I'll just quickly spoil that one for you. Uh, Dennis won't say who currently owns the right, and currently there is no way to legally get Steel Empire, at least not without resorting to some <clears throat> shady means. So that's it. You, you can't really get it anywhere <laughs> uh, unless you Google with your mighty Google powers. So now I am going to turn the mic over to Dennis and I'll see you back after the interview for the does it hold up today bit at the end. All right, cool. Here we go. Yeah, so Millennium was our publisher, and they the original name of the game was actually called Cybernetics. Oh. And, but people thought that that was too complicated. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone thought that. It was the strangest thing. And um, uh, so they thought Cybernetics was too complicated, and they wanted to make something that uh, a, 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 a more simplified title that would speak to how the game played and what it was about. And they mm. thought steel, because we're talking about, you know, machines and mechs and cyborgs <laughs> um, and empire because of the risk factor with it. So that's how, that's why the name actually changed. So back in the day, I used to love the Dungeons and Dragons games. I don't know if you ever played them from SSI, you know, the really old, old ones. I'm familiar and, with them tangentially. Yeah. Yeah. They were great. So, um, Back in the day, I would say about two or three years earlier, they were the thing. And so SSI was a publisher and a strategy, you know, Strategic Simulations Incorporated, I think it stood for. Mm-hmm. Um, they were the uh, one of the well-known groups that at least games that I played on the strategy side. Um, so I went to the, the first place I visited and we sat down, I showed them the game and they, they were just, it was this really strange feeling. They just kept looking at me and looking at me and they're like, they're like, okay, so this game is done. And I'm like, yes. Um, so we just need to publish it. And I'm like, yes. And they're like, what's the name of it? So I just use cyber just out of calling it cyber empires for three years. I told them it was called steel, uh, empires in the UK, but they didn't seem to care. And they, then they said, okay, we'll take this game, and would you like to do two more for us? Hmm. Good deal. And, yeah, so that's how, that's how Silicon Knights actually uh, became a company. Uh, Strategic Simulations uh, funded us to do more projects right away. They loved it so much. So what, what, uh, what, what led you to want to design games in the first place this is like hello i was born in and i went to and gotcha yeah that thing gotcha well that that's uh it's another another interesting question so believe it or not 
Um, I didn't start in computer science. My first degree uh, was in physical education. <laughs> yes, and, I actually knew that. That was fun. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I went to, so Brock University, where I did my undergraduate in phys ed and computer science, mm. has one of the best wrestling teams in Canada. And I wanted to wrestle. I was very interesting, interested in varsity wrestling. Um, and uh, I did a lot of martial arts when I was younger. And uh, I, I, I met some of the guys who were wrestling. When I was in high school, um, I started wrestling at the university because there was no one in my weight category and the coaches were better. <laughs> and so I started wrestling there. So before I knew it, before I was even out of high school, I was already hanging out with the uni Brock University wrestling team. And I got accepted at many other universities for computer science. And, um, you know, when I was talking to my parents growing up, I, I was like, you know, I, I love computer science, but I, I think I, I want to go wrestle. I want to. So I did my first degree um, in phys ed. And then when I was finished that and um, I had wrestled quite a bit at that point, um, I started thinking about what I was going to do. Um, I, I was accepted into the RCMP. I thought about going into uh, the police force here. Um, but then I decided that I just really, really loved video games. So I put myself through computer science because I didn't feel I had the tools to make them. And I was, I, I, frankly, quite terrified. Um, but as it turned out, um, I ended up getting the high average in the class. And I was really good at uh, computer science for some reason. And um, that's as soon as after my after my first year, I was like, OK, I'm going to make a game. I started hanging out with guys. Uh, that I thought would be really uh, would work well with that. And I met my partner at the time who later became the partner at Silicon Knights, Rick Gertz. We, we did our undergraduate together and we started making um, cyber or steel empires. And that was the first game we made it. We were working on it during the summer while we were doing our undergraduates in computer science at Brock University. Okay. Was it, it, was it just the two of you who did the entirety of uh, steel empire? Um, there was a couple people, uh, that came in and out. Um, so, uh, we had, uh, some people help us with, um, so the, the majority of the game was made on the Atari, but when it came to bringing it to the Amiga and the PC, we got help from various people. Um, some guys who are now, who, one of the guys who runs Rockstar in Toronto now, a really good guy, nice. Kevin, Kevin Orr. Yeah. Um, And um, he's a great guy, and uh, he was the first one to show me how to use remote debugging. He actually created his own remote debugger between Amigas. So back back in the day, when you were compiling on a PC, if your machine crashed, it would crash your whole system. So what you wanted to do is have a slave machine. So you'd run the game on a slave. Mm -hmm. And so <laughs> he had this whole thing set up running. It was really impressive. And so I worked on it with him, and then he, he connected me with another guy, um, uh, who helped me with the PC version. Um, and uh, the thing about Steel Empires, uh, a lot of it was done in assembly language. So um, some of the main strategic parts were done in C, but all of the combat and the split screen stuff, because frame rate was so crucial, mm -hmm. 
was all done in assembly. And assembly was different for each one of those machines, right? So it was kind of, it was kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah, I remember my dad trying to learn assembly language for the Commodore 64. And, you know, as a, as a, you know, as a kid, like an eight-year-old kid looking over his shoulder, he's just going, that is just, that's gobbledygook. I'll never understand that. <laughs> Um, it's, um, you know, it's funny. Uh, I look at computer science today and there's so many high level languages. You learn a lot when you actually do assembly code. You really understand how the machine works. But now the architectures of the new machines that are out today, even if you look at the PlayStation with the cell processors, it gets so complicated with predictive algorithms and stuff. It, it's actually, I don't know if it's better anymore to program an assembly. Um, and, and some of the compilers with the way they do things statistically, you probably end up with better code. But back then, you had no choice. And But you learn a lot. You learn how the machines work, and it was kind of fun. Mm -hmm. uh, what what uh, what year are we in, roughly, when, when you guys decided to do, okay, let's do Steel Empire? Uh, probably 1988. 1988 for the Atari ST. Um, Correct. Was that was it, uh, uh, I I I sort of understand that the Atari ST and the IBM PC were big in North America, and over in Europe we had the Amiga and Commodore 64 computers. Is, was that true in Canada as well? Like Atari ST um, is big, and Commodore not so much. Yes, that's cr well. Um, actually, I would say. It was more of a three-way split with the PC being in the worst position. Mm -hmm. um, I think Atari was a little stronger than Amiga. But um, once I, interestingly enough, once I saw the Amiga, I was blown away. I thought the Atari was the best thing ever. Mm -hmm. And then um, uh, I saw the Amiga with the multitasking, and I was like, wow, this is like groundbreaking. Yeah. You know, multitasking, multithreading, that's incredible. Um and uh, the PC, I hated it. I just hated it. I hated it. I hated it. And I never envisioned that the PC could ever be a gaming machine back then. I, I just thought, well, we're going to do this because everyone says we have to, but ah, I hate this machine. <laughs> and it turns out, of course, you know, in the end, you should never, never try to predict technology by what you like yourself. I've learned that lesson. <laughs> and, uh, you know, of course, PC eventually dominated everything. So do you remember, um, it's a turn-based game, it's a really classic game, um, goes way back, it's one of the first um, games, it was actually called Empire. Um, no, I was, hoping, and, I was hoping you'd say Defender of the Crown, because I remembered that one, but no, well, not, not Empire. Well, Defender of the Crown, uh, I played a ton, I loved Defender of the Crown, and I, I eventually ended up working with the creator of Defender of the Crown. Ooh. Uh, yeah, he, uh, Bob Jacob, who used to own, um, oh, I'm blanking on the name of the company now, but Cinemaware? he owned, yeah, he owned Cinemaware, he created Cinemaware, and he worked with us uh, through, after Blood Omen for probably around 15 years. Mm. We worked together, and he, he was our agent. Um, he was part of, um, was part of a group that represented us uh, when negotiating deals with publishers stuff as part of Silicon Knights. And um, so... But I did, I did play that game a lot. So I'd say there's probably some inspiration from there. Um, however, um, Archon was probably one of the biggest inspirations for me. I loved Archon. Mm -hmm. um, and now Archon wasn't split screen, but it was action. And I guess uh, when you look at what we did, we just basically said, why can't we take a strategy map um, and take some of the elements of risk, you know, put some tactical, uh, you know, elements for and strategic elements in there for actually 
having reasons to take to take over certain regions. And um, it just became sort of a hybrid of all the stuff we wanted to see in games. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was also a huge fan of the Bitmap Brothers back then. I don't know if you remember those guys. Oh, definitely. Uh, they were big on the Commodore 64 and Amiga, certainly. Oh, I, I just, I loved all of their games. Um, they and were gorgeous, uh, too. I mean, they the, were, the games, I'm, I'm sure the fellas were quite handsome as well, but the games were gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I would, I would... I would say for me, they were the high watermark for the gaming industry at the time. They were doing things, almost every game that they made had some, they were graphically incredible, you're right. They were very smooth, always had great frame rates. And they were doing things um, that uh, many games weren't doing at the time. And uh, though they wouldn't stand out today, they, I, they were, I would consider them gameplay breakthroughs at the time, mm-hmm. um, depending on what game you're looking at. And um, so, yeah, uh, so heavily influenced by those guys as well. Just really, really like that stuff quite mm-hmm. a bit. I don't know if you're aware, but I did, I think I did all of the artwork um, for Cyber, actually. Oh, the, uh, so, uh, the original artwork for the Atari ST and also the PC and Amiga versions, or were they converted? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, no, no. Oh yeah. No, I, I, I think, I think, yeah, I think I did. I think I did almost everything. Yeah. Wow. Um, wow. So, so, um, well, I, a lot of people don't know this, but um, I'm a. Have you ever heard of Miyamoto Masashi? Um, Miyamoto Mas- no, sorry, sorry, I haven't. He, he's known. He's known as the Sword Saint. Uh, he's one of the most famous samurai uh, in history, and he wrote. He wrote this book called The Book of Five Rings. Mm-hmm. And um, I started. I studied, uh, as I referenced earlier. I studied a lot of martial arts. Yeah. And um, he wrote in his book one of the books of ground. He says basically, if you want to become, he wrote this book because he's trying to explain to people why he was so good at being a samurai, and. <laughs> In there, he basically, he went, so just so you know, he had 50 battles to the death. He won, he was undefeated for 50 battles to the death. Well, he got around to writing a book, so he was, if it was a battle to the death. (laughs) Yes, he was incredible. And he actually beat uh, one of the emperor's swordmasters with an oar coming off a boat. Wow. So this guy was incredible. And um, anyway, in the Book of Ground, which was one of the five rings, he talks about uh, in order to understand um, and be good at what you do, you need to know all the weapons. You need to know everything. So um, I always made uh, – I, I was an artist when I was much younger. So I, I kept – I try to keep all my skills up wherever I can. So even things like, say, uh, Blood Omen Legacy of King, mm-hmm. I did a lot of the artwork in that game. You know, The game design, of course, the stories, storytelling, a lot of the audio, uh, a lot of the programming. So I, I always try to keep my hands in everything. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, but for cyber, um, <laughs> I was pretty much uh, the artist. <laughs> okay, I did not know that. So um, the playtesting group were my uh, wrestling wrestling uh, friends. So the wrestling team would come down and we would play. And back then... Um, I would say game design was in is it was in its extreme infancy, mm-hmm. and um, redoing cyber, I would look at all the mechan- mechanics and do a much thorough, much more thorough way, uh, uh, much more thorough uh, balancing. 
I, I think regiment. So I agree with you. Some of it uh, is not that balanced. Um, but there was simply, we were basically, there was Rick and I making this game. We were in school, <laughs> right? So we were students. And um, the whole idea of balancing a game for multiplayer, you need to, there was no internet. Mm-hmm. So, and, and ironically, I don't know if you know this, but Cyber Empire, Steel Empire won uh, multiplayer game of the year by Computer Gaming World. Yes. Um, and, um, but back then it was a hot seat game. It was nothing like it is today where you can do rapid gameplay balancing by having hundreds of people play the game, get results back, save databases of what things are. None of that mm. was even conceived, right? Like sending out a patch meant you had to you know, have your publisher print up discs and send them physically uh, in the mail and all that junk. Uh, the, the, the sort of idea of a patch back then, I don't even think it existed. I don't think there were patches. Um there were, I think I, the air industry was way too early because there was no no real way of getting, you know, you had your discs, you shipped them out, and, and that was it. Mm-hmm. That was it. The game was done. <laughs> yes. I also uh, really felt, and then there's the Archon influences that when you battle on a square, the square should represent, you know, where you're actually fighting in, um, uh, why. Like, for me, that's when I started thinking about, okay, if we're going to have a battle in the city, the city's worth more. Uh, because of all the buildings, but if you destroy all the buildings, it's worth less. So you can actually, you can actually just, you know, completely burn a city down to the ground, which I did a lot with my friends, my wrestling friends, run around with a mech that they couldn't catch and just <laughs> burn the city to the ground <laughs> while they're trying to take it over. And yeah. it, and um, and you know that that's a weakness too. There's you need things that um, we. You, moving, uh, looking towards, say, a Cyber Empires 2 in the future, um, there, I, I would sort of have a rock, paper, scissors, so you couldn't do that. So what would be a good anti, uh, anti-light anti mech? You know, that what would be good for killing light mechs and, and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I, I, uh, I, I really am proud of that aspect of the game, of how this strategy and tactics combine and, and go... Uh, are pretty well linked uh, with the action portion of the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, the type of terrains were picked from the beginning, and the balancing was then done on the fly as we were creating them. And so I was creating mechs on the fly and seeing, <laughs> well, it would be really, okay, let's have a mech called the Dragon that overheats these mechs really quickly, and uh, let's have one that fires missiles, but the missile one won't be, will be really good in the desert, terrible in the forest, you know, you want wide open terrain. So the missiles were useless in cities and forests, essentially, right? And and so that was the idea. Certain certain ones were really good in certain areas, and certain ones weren't. And depending uh, on the picks that you created, you could you could really do some um, really do some crazy stuff. I would say Cyber Empires has a, a, a number of levels of uh, complication that go beyond. Uh, say warcraft however warcraft um is much more simple and easier for people to pick up but then it it results in uh not uh these um min max uh min min max pass where once you get good at them and once you recognize what the pass are that you can immediately win right away and when we were creating uh, Steel Empire or Cyber Empire, 
we really wanted to, um, we, we were, so Rick, uh, my partner at the time, he had, he had done, uh, I believe it was a chess, uh, a, a lot of chess algorithms and maybe some go algorithms. We, we wanted it to do exactly what you said. So it was great hearing that, that you felt that it was different every time. Cause that was our goal. Huh. We hate, like if you play risk a lot, you know, if you start in a certain way and say, even if you start in Australia and, and you get Australia and you can sort of, you can, that's a really good starting spot. You know, you can, if you get certain continents, it's unstoppable. And we definitely did not want that in cyber. And, um, and, and it, it's, I think because we had the, uh, I guess more sophisticated or, or a little deeper gameplay elements of the things I was describing earlier. That that way we could avoid some of the um, things that they encountered in in, in Warcraft that were problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Warcraft is much more of a Twitch game as well. There's much less strategy. It's all tactics, right? It's all just go go build this, build this tree, and then go and charge. Which I think is fine. It's just um, for us. Um, you know, we wanted to create something different. And I, I, I think Warcraft came much later anyway, didn't it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it did. It did, definitely. It's just I, I don't play that many strategy games. So Steel Empire is kind of... I'm, I'm more of an adventure game nerd, actually. So uh, for, for having having Steel Empire as one of my favorite games is kind of a, a an anomaly in my library of games. You know, I'm a huh. Sierra Online LucasArts nerd. So, uh, so And then I love Steel Empire. And... <laughs> So, oh, that's funny. Yeah, that's cool. Um, you you were talking a bit about the things you, you would have liked to put in the game, like weather and such. Uh, were there other ideas that you had that were just not feasible, or that you put in the game and that did not work out for some reason? All kinds. Um, uh, so, but this is over thirty years of thinking about. So, Cyber Empires was the first game um, I created, and. I actually thought I would create a dungeon crawler first. When I was much younger, I had envisioned uh, this dungeon crawler and castle idea and stuff. And then when we actually ended up creating Cyber, um, I thought about all the other things that I wanted to put in. And I, I um, so weather, uh, technology trees, um, oh, Millions of things, upgrades to uh, robots and all that. Abs- absolutely, and a more balanced perspective on so different kinds of treads. Uh, what what different kinds of uh, uh, treads is the wrong word? Different kinds of movement um, mm. um, variables, and certain things would do better on certain trains. So all kinds of things like that were some of the things that uh, I was I was thinking about and have been thinking about for 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 quite a while now. Mm-hmm. You have the you have the risk portion where you can sort of lean back. It's your turn. You have to you know if you're the other player, you wait for the first person to get done and you know uh, click out and say okay now it's your turn. Uh, and then once you get into the battle simulator, you get the screen that says and now you should probably get ready because uh, stuff's about to get real. And then it shifts gears on you. So there is that learning curve. You sit down and first you're playing a strategy game. And it's all relaxed and you can have a you know a drink and lean back and such. And all of a sudden you're playing this high octane action game. Um, so was that was that like a was was that like a jarring experience for for audiences at the time? I think I think it was. And to this day, I think about um, see for the Amiga and the Atari, it wasn't that big of a deal. But for the PC, it was a big deal uh, using a joystick. Yeah. And um, I think, uh, and, and I, uh, Chuck Krogel, who was the executive producer at SSI when working on Fantasy Empires, 
he really tried to persuade me to go towards using a mouse instead of the um, joystick. In, in the battle and, simulator. Yeah, in the battle simulator, yeah. Jeez. So do 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 an do an interface that's more like Warcraft or more like uh, Dune. Um, and ironically, the guys that made Dune is working works with Chuck now, and I talk to those guys all the time. They're in Las Vegas. They're they're um, uh, they're they're a great group called Petroglyph. Mm. Are really good, really good friends of mine, and um, so I talk to them all the time. And I really wish I would have listened to him because I do think it was jarring for people. And the fact that you would go from a mouse and a keyboard, then pick up a joystick, um, I think that was one of the barriers to entry. Um, when I look back uh, on the interface, the fact that you have to pick up something totally different, <laughs> you know. Um, is uh would be something that i you know uh wouldn't do today I, so but back then back then i didn't know well i i would i would have to admit that's actually one of the reasons why i love steel empire to be ah. perfectly honest it is because you have this very you know relaxing calm before the storm and then you kick into the battle simulator and you have maybe like two or three minutes battles don't usually take that long you have two or three minutes of heart pounding action and then it's back to you know ah the plateau thing I, I really, really love that. Also, I always played Steel Empire with the keyboard. I, you know, like two people uh, having to switch seats because, uh, you know, the uh, attacking force is always on the left side and the defending force is always on the right. So there's this, you know, you get a, you get a little bit of exercise. You have to get off the couch and then move around and sit on opposite sides. Yeah. Looking back on it, uh, it actually, it, it, the game actually describes your your personality quite well. It is you, you start off uh, in the computer science, uh, you know, strategic stuff, and then you have a wrestling match, and then you go back to the strategic. <laughs> I guess that's true. I never thought about it that way, but that's true. <laughs> just, um, it actually the the question. I mean, the overhead map is is very well designed first of all because like you say there are no strategic uh, um, advantages of starting somewhere in the map because you know the whole map sort of pulls you into the center where all the good bits are and the players Mm -hmm. all start around the corners of the map um one thing that you know my friends and i who played steel empire always uh, you know dearly wished was that there was more than one world map so i guess the question is why is there only one world map I mean, uh, it's it's well, a planet. Well, I know it, it you know, story wise yeah. it's it's just one planet. No, 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 no for sure. No, um so you need to remember no game had ever been made like this before. <laughs> Good point. So um so considering uh, another map, uh we only started doing that when we got to Dark Legions, which was our third game. Mm-hmm. Um uh, so even Fantasy Empires only had one map. Mm-hmm. Same thing. Um and um I agree why wouldn't we have more than one map? For sure, absolutely. Um, but uh, back then, um, it's it's really ironic. I remember when uh, the Total War series came out, and I had all these people would come up to me saying, "Hey, this game is amazing! Look at this! They're combining risk with action. You've ever seen that before?" <laughs> and I just look at people. I'd be like, "Yeah, I made the game like." This is when I was doing Legacy of Cain, I think, or maybe it was even after Legacy of Cain. Anyways, a, a long time later, and um, and then when I would describe Cyber Empires, now I describe it. It's kind of like Total War before Total War, and um, <laughs> you know, because the Total War series has really taken off. And yeah. um, um, back in the 1980s, there was absolutely no technology around here. The whole city was General Motors. That was the industry. It employed like 30,000 people. And uh, uh, 
even thinking about making video games. So I was doing my master's and um, I was dating uh, Joanne at the time and her parents were like, you're getting a master's degree in computer science. Why aren't you working for IBM or Microsoft? What are you doing? <laughs> Why don't you make <laughs> spreadsheet software? That's yeah, what all the cool and, kids are doing. And um, I, I just did it because I loved it and I took a chance. So both my parents were fantastic because they had their own businesses and they encouraged me. But both both my wife and I were, you know, um, so it's the girl that I dated back then is the girl that I married and we're together these days. We're both only children. So, um, and I understand her parents saying that. And when I look back, it's like, you know, just saying that I wanted to make video games and just going ahead and doing it is, was, um, you know, I just did it because I wanted to do it. I followed my heart. And I think that's what everyone should always do in life. Um, you know, because if you love what you do for work, you never work a day in your life. Um, so which which uh, which of the uh, versions? Uh, it was on Atari ST, Amiga, and PC. Were there any other versions? And which one is your favorite? Um, so, uh, no, those were the only ones uh, that, that was out. And I would say the Amiga was my favorite because... Um, uh, the hardware at the time was the most superior mm-hmm. and the sound colors. Well, yeah 32 colors yeah because see I did the game with 16 colors I believe on the Atari and I had to like 16 colors for the entire game was actually really hard <laughs> I, yeah I can imagine <laughs> so I, I, I everything was done pixel by pixel every every I would just sit back and look at it change a pixel, look at it, change the pixel, all that kind of stuff. And then choosing the colors, you know, it all had to work with all the backgrounds, all the trains, all the mechs, all that stuff. Um, but yeah, so uh, the Amiga was a breath of fresh air and the sound quality was really good oh, on yeah. the Amiga. Yeah. The sound was amazing. So um, that's why I liked it the most, um, because of the sound. Well, it, so, it must have been liberating doing the uh, 256 color VGA version for pc then because you didn't have mechs disappearing in the desert and all that stuff yeah so um that so i i I worked i worked on some of that stuff with a guy called andy brownbill and um it's i don't know if i actually it's gonna sound strange it wasn't liberating the architecture was so different (laughs) from from the um, amiga and the atari that i was just happy to get it going so um, it was a completely, again, a completely different architecture. None of the machine language that was written before would work at all. Hmm. So it was just kind of like, oh, no, it was kind of like doing the game over again from scratch. Uh-huh. And um, but so, yes, the colors were better for sure. But at the same time, all the assembly language I found, I don't know why, but I found it incredibly difficult and hard to um, get used to compared to um you know, the 68,000 language that was on uh, the Amigas and the Ataris. That was the machine language at the time, 68,000. Yeah. Um, so it was it was very, very different on the PC. The PC back then definitely was not meant for gaming. It was like people were like, this is a business machine. You shouldn't be doing games on it. Yeah, <laughs> and, exactly. Um, so, um, but you know, it was an experience. So, um, it was, it was both liberate, liberating and painful. So, <laughs> well, most, most of my favorite movies have also been, you know, the ones that had painful developments like, you know, Blade Runner and Robocop and such. So oh. play, playing the uh, Steel Empire PC version, uh, kind of falls into that category. I imagine it, 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 those are, those are some of my favorite movies too, by the way, Blade Runner is my favorite movie of all time. Mine too. I was just, yeah. wow. So what shall it be? 
We're back with the Does It Hold Up Today segment. Uh, so does Steel Empire hold up today? Well, you know, actually, strategy game buffs might scoff at the simplistic nature of the strategy portion of the game, and they might be turned off by the arcade shooty parts. Uh, be- but but for me, actually, th- those are all strengths of the game, because it's easy to pick up, and having the player be in direct control of the battles mean that you can still come out on top against what would otherwise be seemingly impossible odds. So I actually like the simplistic strategy and I actually like that there's a battle simulator in there so that, uh, you know, so it's not all strategy. You get to, you know, have some action arcadey bits and then it's back to the strategy part again. And uh, you can't just win with your brains alone. You have to, you have to actually, you know, fight it and duke it out. Because personally, I'm terrible at strategy games. I'm no good at XCOM. I suck at StarCraft. Don't even get me started on Total Annihilation or Command and Conquer. I can't even count that many units, let alone direct them to do anything useful without completely losing sight of what I'm doing. So. Steel Empire is my kind of strategy game because it is simplistic, but it has just the right amount of strategy that I don't get overwhelmed and then have the gameplay switch gears on you and turn into an arcade shooter. It just breaks up the monotony. So uh, for me, Steel Empire is is actually a great party game because you can gather like five friends around the computer and have a very good time. And it takes quite a while to finish the campaign, especially if you have five players. So uh, it's basically an all-nighter. Uh, chances are you won't even get uh, a campaign done in one evening, but you'll you'll still have a good time. You could even turn it into a drinking game. I'm not saying you should, but you know, every time someone destroys a Titan, you down a drink. I don't know. And make up your own rules. I'm not your mother. I think Steel Empire absolutely holds up today as, you know, not as a serious strategy game, put on your general hat and, uh, you know, get busy and uh, outwit your opponent and, you know, uh, it's not StarCraft, it's not, you know, WarCraft, it's not Total Annihilation, it's not any of those strategy games that we've all come to expect. It's more of a casual party game kind of thing admittedly one that takes forever to finish but it is kind of you mean you could have steel empire parties and that's what we used to do at university and me and a a couple of friends of mine we used to just skip classes and go over to someone's apartment and just you know over to some dorm room actually and just you know play steel empire for the evening and just call that a day i have no idea how i got a degree honestly it boggles my mind anyway um that's it i think it holds up i think it's a it's a fantastic game and i'm actually a little disheartened that not that many people know about it these days. So I really hope the rights fall into someone's hands who can do something with it. But anyway, I like it. Steel Empire, great game. And finally, I just want to say a great big thanks to our regular host, Joe. Of course, Joe, good old Joe. He let me do this uh, guest show and I love him. I love the Upper Memory Blog podcast. I always look forward to new episodes of the show, even uh, even if it's for games that I've never played, just because I know that Joe always does his research and he's always very interesting to listen to. It's like reading a very, uh, very good Wikipedia page with a pleasant voice. I don't know how else to describe it. It's you know, Joe brings so much personality and so much um you know just uh it's uh, it's 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 a good podcast. I like it. And and you probably do too otherwise you wouldn't have listened to this episode either, I'm guessing. So um if I have done just half a, as good a job as Joe does on his shows and I probably didn't, so I'm sorry, but um if I did then I would definitely consider 
this episode a success. Now, for the ending spiel, if you have any comments about this episode, other than I'm a terribly rambly bad podcast host, uh, please send your email or voicemails to podcast at umbcast.com and Joe will probably pick those up in a later show. He says he never misses a mail or a voicemail, so get those in if you want. If anyone wants to fly to Denmark and play Steel Empire with me for an evening, I mean, I'm not saying no. (laughs) Uh, Thank you to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. I don't know him personally, but he's good at what he does. Uh, You can find him over at moyermultimedia.com. That's M-O-Y-E-R multimedia.com. Uh, don't forget, if you enjoy the show, you can become Joe's boss over on patreon.com slash umbcast. If you find some value from the Upper Memory Block podcast, and who wouldn't, please consider joining his current patrons in donating a buck or two per show to help him out with costs and to hit his next goal. I have no idea what that goal is, but it sounds worthwhile. You should help him reach it. Uh... Just a quick sidebar, we over on the Backseat Designers podcast are actually proud members of Joe's little Patreon army, so we can uh, definitely say it is worth it. You can check out the show notes at umbcast.com. You can join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash... Where is my mouth going? Facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. And you can follow the show at Twitter, on Twitter, at Twitter, what the hell am I doing? Twitter.com slash UMB show. You can also follow Joe personally at Twitter.com slash BillyBob476. And you can follow me, should you choose to do so, Space Quest Historian, over on Twitter.com slash SQ Historian. It's early in the morning, my tongue is not really cooperative <laughs> for some reason. Uh, so that's why I'm... Um, Yeah, you should also go back on track to youtube.com slash umbcast where Joe puts out videos of his quote-unquote game research sessions. They're really just let's plays uh, of tremendous fun and value. Uh, Again, quick sidebar, I also do my own let's play videos, including one of Steel Empire over on youtube.com slash spacequesthistorian. And I do have three podcasts that I mentioned earlier, the Space Quest Historian podcast, which is over on spacequesthistorian.com, the Backseat Designers podcast, which has just started season four, and we have a slew of interesting interviews with game developers uh, and all sorts of magical, wonderful people. You can find that over on backseatdesigners.com. And I have a uh, third podcast, which is just everything and nothing under the nerd sun uh, with my co-host Robert Menes. It's over on nerdagainstthemachine.com. But you should first and foremost of all subscribe to this show, the Upper Memory Block Podcast, on iTunes or Steam or stream them live on Stitcher Radio, whatever the hell that is, and look for the next episode of Upper Memory Block, which will probably be far better than this one because I am a terrible waste of flesh and oxygen. And as always, I will see you Around the Chrono Stream. Ta-ta. Battle control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastriani. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. 
Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join us.